become semi-traditional to start with the musical beginning. I'm trying to remember because I paused Green Mile in the middle and Jen was making dinner and I was singing a Green Mile song. So now I'm trying to remember it so I can share it. Heaven, I'm in heaven. Oh no, meanwhile, at the Green Mile, it made me smile with its amazing story. Green miles. And then it went on from there. But uh, it's an allegory. I remember that was part of it. It's an allegory. <laughs> it is. Right. Um, That's right. And uh, that is, I was singing sarcastically as you do. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's the big reveal is. I actually don't think the story is amazing. Um, mm-hmm. And that's what I was singing to Jen and what we were giggling about so smugly in our elite left coast uh, spire. Oh, so you're starting to, you're starting, you you're said, he- heavy hitting. You said, is there something you want to say at the top? And what I want to say at the top is all the kind people who listen to the show because. They love us unpacking things that we love. And uh, people who po- posted on Twitter, they're so excited about the Green Mile episode because they love Green Mile. I want to warn them, I hated this film. Really? <laughs> For reasons. This is it. And I this expect- This is it. This is the one. You'll be- I was like, I don't think we'll agree. I think people will be su- very surprised by my take, but it's incredibly yeah. negative. Uh, Green well, you know mile, you know, sweet you, child uh, of heaven, mine. <laughs> yeah, dueling. And my heart beats so I can hardly speak. Uh, you know, I like this movie. I wouldn't Good. say I love this movie, Great. but I like this movie plenty. And I think that the allegory aspect of this movie is one of the reasons I like it. I also like October Sky. I th- see you don't even. So I was wondering if you'd pick up on it. There's a reason. I'm not insane, mm. Abraham. You're not insane, In Abraham Gary of, Epperson. There's, it's probably because it's well, okay. Oh, you could probably guess because you know how my I brain think. works. But maybe we should just mm. get into format, and that's maybe the trigger warning for people who I love that mm. people want me to like things they like. If you really like Green Mile, you might want to dip out mm. for this one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't want to ruin Let's... anyone's childhood if Mr. Jingles was their jam. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, let's get into it. All right. Well, we're going to start uh, as we do. This is structured. Welcome to Kings of King. I'm Abe Epperson. Oh, sure. <laughs> I'm Michael Swaim. And I'll tell you what you do. You put a post in the ground, right? And you run mm-hmm. a line out from there and you uh-huh. walk it. That way you get a uniform circle. You uh-huh. chalk that line. You dig a trench. Yeah, and you yeah, install... Yeah, yeah. A dome, my friend, because surprise, you're under it. Our best guess puts the dome at 20,000 feet, sir. Did he just call it a dome? You think we might be stuck in here a while? Under the dome. This is the elevator synopsis of the movie. Uh, So I feel like because you don't like it as much, I want you to do the synopsis because you'll probably just, I think it will play to your point more. Because you'll be like, and then this happens, this happens. These are the things that I cared about. And then I'll come back with a fine tooth comb and be like, but you forgot this and this connects to this. And this is how I want it to go. (laughs) Okie dokie. Open on what appears to be slave catchers running through cotton, but is not. It's actually locals running towards the source of a double murder. 
rape murder. But uh, I just think that is central to my point uh, because police in this country began as a slave catching mm-hmm. force. And now you might know why I don't like this movie. But oh, uh, yeah, here we go. As far as the movie goes, um, we fade from that to an old folks home where old Paul Edgecombe is, uh, sees something on TV. I know old he goes Paul. to the shack first, but I gloss over stuff more in my elevator synopsis. Um, mm-hmm. I guess I didn't. He sneaks off to a shack, then he comes back. Yeah, Jack. And he sees something on TV that makes him cry. It's Abe trying to sing Heaven, I'm in Heaven. Yeah. And uh, he starts to break down. And his friend pulls him aside and goes, well, you know, what's wrong? You got to talk about it. We got to normalize. What's going on with you? And he says, let me tell you a story. It's called Saving Private Ryan. I mean, Mm -hmm. Green Mile. Mm -hmm. But I am Tom Hanks. And I had uh, the worst urinary tract infection of my life. So we fade to Tom Hanks trying to pee, can't pee. Girls don't cry in baseball. Nope, it's not that one. It's this one where he can't pee. And uh, he is a prison guard at on death row. And they call death row the green mile. Most places call it the long mile. He calls it the green mile because theirs was green, the color green. of faded limes. And um, what proceeds is then sort of, I would call it, a procedural it's almost three and a half episodes of a procedural but if you know what i mean it feels like we sort of get to know the prison and there were a few stories king wanted to tell and he interweaves them um there is an arc to it but it's three hours and it takes its time exploring different nooks before it Mm. finally like convenes Mm -mm -mm. so the basic threads are we get to know the people on death row currently who are Del, short for Delacroix, a French Cajun dude. I don't think mm-hmm. we find out specifically what he did. Uh, Sam Rockwell, who comes in about a third of the way through the movie, who's called Wild Bill and is really just a piece of shit. Uh, a classic Sam Rockwell character. And then, uh, 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 sorry, I forgot the actor's name, even though we used to have a sketch troupe named after him. Michael Clark Duncan. Michael Clark Duncan as the new guy who is who was convicted of raping and murdering these two little girls who he was found mm-hmm. cradling them and screaming. And they just assume he did it because he's big and black. <laughs> and well, so, he's enormous. He's they they made he's him Michael look, Clark Duncan. Yeah, but they made him look two feet taller than Michael Clark Duncan is. <laughs> Right. In the movie. Well, his, in his introduction... He's like over seven feet. In his tall. introduction, they refuse to even show his head. He's shot like a monster. Like, literally, yeah. the black guy is treated by the film as mm-hmm. if he is the horror monster. That's anyway. right. And, yeah, and he's shown to be a gentle giant, which is a whole nother uh, trope. Um, yeah, absolutely. Oh, oh. This is also a very hackneyed homage to Of Mice and Men, clearly. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, he is uh, simple-minded or not, depending on the situation, because there's times where he strings together really complex sentences. Uh, But it just seems like, which I actually think is an interesting avenue. He's psychic and he can uh, like limitedly touch you and see what's going on with you or tell if something's wrong or if someone has evil in them or is damaged. Mm. And his main deal is that he can pull, he has healing factor. He can uh, pull your 
your wound or your trauma out of you. It seems to damage him because it's in him for a while, but he can also vomit it out. And, uh, yeah, that's his deal. It's not fully explained. It doesn't need to be. It's just something that Paul witnessed in his life. So those are our players. And on the prison guard side, you got Paul Edgecombe, Brutal, who is not Brutal. Uh, I think it's just a play on his name. David Morse. uh, Brutus is his name. Brutus. Yeah, that's right. Brutal. Uh, Harry, who is uh, the guy from season one of Walking Dead. (laughs) And... um, uh, and uh, Percy, of course. How could I forget Percy? So on either side of the line of mm-hmm. law, law and order, you have one bad apple, right? So on the criminal side, they all seem to not really like they shouldn't be on death row. <laughs> but Wild mm-hmm. Bill seems like he's, he really probably should be on death row. Yeah. And then on the guard side, you got all the guards are are to a level that I would call copaganda, which is my big problem with the film portrayed as if Stephen King takes for granted that, Oh, prison guards, of course, treat the guards with, they're like the bridge of the enterprise. They're like, no, sir, you cannot be racist to that inmate. Although he is in jail, he is under our aegis until he leaves this life. Except there's one bad apple. That's the Mm. way Mm. Percy his his un- his aunt is the reason he even has this job, and he just is a sicko who loves mm-hmm. to treat prisoners brutally, and that's that's why you occasionally hear stories about police brutality. Anyway, yeah, Doug Hutchinson. Yeah, I digress. Percy's the evil one. There, it's not trying to be a statement on these issues. I just find it mm-hmm. to be irresponsibly negligent in the statements it makes without making them on this issue. I'll get into that more as far as the events of the movie. And this isn't a speedrunner rant, so Abe can interrupt if I'm mistaken, but mm-hmm. uh, we also get a tour of the process. Like they rehearse the process of executing someone. Then they do a real execution and they play a fun game with like the first time it's uneasy, but jokey. They're doing a walkthrough. And then when they do it for real, you, of course, feel the gravitas of someone actually dying. Mm-hmm. And it's really fucked up. Um, I mean, Paul's aware of it during that scene. He's yes. like, no, don't laugh. This We have, we have to do this for the real. We're killing someone. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, the warden's wife has an inoperable brain tumor. And uh, it just so happens that a mouse enters the prison. These are the various threads that are, will be woven together masterfully by King. Mm. So um, at this point, uh, Tom Hanks is wandering through the precinct or whatever you call it, the Green Mile, I suppose. And Michael Clark Duncan grabs his wiener and sucks his evil out and it cures his mm. UTI and he goes home and fucks mm. his wife a lot. And then all night. All night, by the way. That's right. It crossfades from darkness to like he arrives at home to the now there's no sun shining. He fucked all night. It's the same crossfade from Forrest Gump when his mom's being fucked, incidentally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in that one, I think you're supposed to believe that's over time. Yes. She's having sex with men. Uh, In this, it is... They had a super 16-hour-long fuck session. That's right. And he came four times. They're very explicit about the details of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So- We get the main details in Under the Dome is my Del, Del, meanwhile, befriends the mouse. Percy and Del have beef. 
Percy ends up wetting his pants in fear because uh, Sam Rockwell fucks with him. So mm-hmm. Percy, out of petty vengeance, crushes the mouse, but Michael Clark Duncan brings the mouse back to life. So now, uh, although Tom Hanks was apparently content to just have his wiener fixed and not do anything about that, everyone has seen that he has healing powers, so he decides to now do something about it. So he mm-hmm. says... I'm going to investigate this John Coffey situation. He goes to see Gary Sinise, who is his defense attorney. It becomes apparent that Gary Sinise let him be convicted because he's racist. So at this point, his concern naturally becomes, oh no, my dear reader, not freeing Michael Clark Duncan or overturning his the wrongful conviction of mm-hmm. someone with mental illness, but... Instead, breaking him out of prison to free him? No, 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 dear reader. No, no, no. To, to get, save James Cromwell's wife. To get James Cromwell's white wife's brain tumor removed. That's correct. So, John Coffey, JC, a Jesus Christ character, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, allegorically, um, is freed only... the So, Black Jesus... I can't not tangent. I'm sorry, dude. Black Jesus, like the giving tree, is just here for you to extract his magic till he gets mm-hmm. so tired that he wants to mm-hmm. die. <laughs> that's Black yeah, Jesus. That's the, conclu- that's the conclusion, too, is that like ultimately we do find he's innocent and we find Wild Bill did it because, of course, he did because he's the Wild, only crazy guy. Out, there's, yep. Yep. And he makes he takes he takes all that. He'd been saving all that pain, all that disease from uh Cromwell wife and uh he spits it into Percy who goes insane as he do if you were you know like filled flies, with the devil went into the devil, yeah, filled in with the devil that's what it represents a sin um throwing it into his mouth now Percy aka D- uh Doug Hutch- Hutchinson um he shoots uh Wild Bill so it kind of wraps that whole story up. And now he's also insane. So even though he was afflicted in the brain and ultimately a bad guy um, who like would hurt animals and would, you know, like hit people for no reason because he had a he had sabotage a he also execution, sabotage and yeah. execution because he wanted to see someone fry all that stuff. Uh Having he now looks like he suffered a mental breakdown. I do like. Shot. Oh, I yeah. liked that because he promised he would transfer to the mental institution as a guard the next day, and the next, next day, day yeah. this is very classic King horror story around a campfire. Yeah, he did justice. transfer to that institution yeah. as uh-huh. a patient. Yeah, yeah. and uh, so yeah, what you're alluding to before I took over was that John Coffey kind of. Even though he like Paul is like, all right, we got to get out of it, get you out of here at this point because you're innocent. Mm-hmm. Um, and Paul is about to do the right thing. John Coffey says, hold on. I don't want to live in this world anymore. Uh, humanity is too cruel. Um, I don't like it here. So just let me die. And it's kind of shown you shown that a little closer when he even on when they're about to put him in the electric chair, chooses not to have the hood on because he's afraid of the dark. Um, Mm. So, yeah. And then we jump back out of time 
to the uh, and he sings heaven I'm in heaven I'm in heaven as he dies yeah and so we're now back to old Paul old oh and you're like oh that's why he freaked out in the beginning yeah and we reveal oh it makes it's been things haven't been making sense we didn't think we thought it was him but then for a second we're like wait is it him because he has a son that was is like fully uh aged in 1930 like what what was it like 1935 did we ever meet it i don't remember his son as a character photo yeah it was referenced um but yeah you kind of put it together the point is stephen king does his little reveal where he's like uh paul is actually 108 years old and as like the coup de gras reveal uh Delacroix's mouse, Mr. Jingles, is still alive. And so now it's even though it's been like 50 years since the execution, um Paul talking to Elaine, uh, another person who I I, I assume is just a I assume his wife's just died, right? He says I lost lived everyone. He says he's outlived his son too. And we're kind of like left with this moment of like, dang, okay, so he can make a uh a mouse live for another 50 years. Well, I and he, is, says, I gonna, I w- he says, I want, he says, Edgecombe going to be an old ass man before he dies. Yeah, he doesn't. Causes. He's tired, but he can't die. And he wonders how long it'll take him to die because yeah. he's like and 108 and he looks like he's about 70. So it's like how long till he actually dies. It'll probably. Yeah, be exactly. Time. And exactly. Uh, I'm just saying he could commit suicide. I don't think anyone's saying he's immortal. He's just long yeah. lived. So, okay. So that's under the dome. Kill now, yourself, a Paul of... Edgecombe. All cops are bastards. Next segment. <laughs> uh, next segment, uh, just moving right through, is called Skeleton Crew. Something in the mist. Shut the doors. Shut the doors. Uh, this is where we talk about the creative team and behind the scenes trivia. <gasps> I didn't have a lot of trivia. I just wanted to paint the uh, portrait of who was making this movie. It has an insane cast. Um, like almost everybody is some uh, a face that you because know. it's pretending to be Shawshank, but it ain't. It ain't Shawshank. That's my next. That's for sure. That's my other thing to levy against it. But is it feels like Shawshank's so little brother, like little mm-hmm. sibling? Anyway, go on, go on, go on. But I mean, give we me got more, give me more fire. William Sadler, Harry Dean Stanton. You know, Gary Sinise is in this. Barry Pepper's in this. Sam Rockwell, Doug Hutchinson, Graham Greene's in this. Everyone's just there for a little bit. Uh, Michael Jeter as Delacroix is amazing. James Cromwell, uh, of course, Mark, Michael Clark Duncan steals the show. Bonnie Hunt's in it uh, as the wife of uh, Cromwell. Paul yeah, no, no, not Cromwell. Bonnie Hunt is um, is oh, Jan, is, oh, is yeah, the yeah, wife yeah. of Tom Hanks. Uh, but like I said, David Morse. Everyone. The story behind this is um, it was kind of Frank Darabont the director and writer of the screenplay wrote the screenplay and had like almost everybody in mind. And he sent it out and kind of famously a lot of people like James Cromwell, um, they had to kind of find Michael Clark Duncan. Um, but everyone that he sent, he was like, I would like you to play this read it and was like, yeah, absolutely. Um, so it kind of shows how, influential at this point Darabont is because Shawshank to Redemption came out and um we haven't covered that in this one it's like okay we got one of the more interesting like less melodramatic versions of Stephen King in the hand of Frank Darabont 
the dude made Shawshank Redemption. This is very like Shawshank and the Redemption. Mist, incidentally. Yeah, but not yet yet. Or no, not, I know, but just in case yeah. people haven't made the connection, I want them yeah, to be Darabont. aware. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have covered um, that. Check the archives. Right. And he's like, he's so good. Uh, he can do no harm. And that's what we're kind of feeling about this. So this does kind of have like the expectation of like knocking our socks off when people were going to it in theaters in 1999. It's definitely um, trying to capture. It wants Oscars. It feels like it wants Oscars. It's trying yep. to capture the success of Shawshank Redemption again. Mm-hmm. And I also question... I don't know. I would take the roles too. I'm not as extreme as this episode's going to make me sound, but I am like, it's bizarre to me that Gary Sinise would want to take this role where he's like, what do I get to do? Or he read it and he's like, yes, I get to be on this one scene where I sit on a porch and call a guy a a Negro and and compare him to a dog. It's like, what are you getting out of it deep down? I'm suspect. And it's too many times now with the Sam Rockwell love. Like what is with only playing people who get to say the N word, Sam Rockwell, you have to answer for that. What is your obsession with it? Are we typecasting him as racist? Is Sam Rockwell racist, man? These are your questions. These are my questions questions after watching The Green Mile. Well, I can't answer those questions for you, but we can talk about this. Sure. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Um, But we can talk about this. uh, You got to hold this episode together, man. I'm driving. No, no. no, I actually think that the the questions you're asking are good. I'm not trying to avoid the questions. I'm just like, I don't have the answers to them. I don't think that there's much. I think this is something everyone's going to have to ask for themselves. And, you know, maybe we should ask, you know, all of history why it's so racist. But at a certain point. uh, Oh, yeah. I'm not arguing it's more than I'm arguing. That's really what I'm arguing. Yeah. Is that this movie in capturing transparent in, especially cause it's a game to telephone because King is also just some white guy and mm. in capturing a story about that it necessarily is wrapped around the prison industrial complex, but doesn't bother. Like it's not about the prison industrial complex because he just wanted to tell a story Mm -hmm. about these characters that happen to involve death row. But death row is so inherently fraught with politics that I just think in its transparency and in its going, whatever the cops are like, you know, movie cops. It's like, it is so white mediocrity and it normalizes everything about like, Oh yeah, of course. Most cops are good. One's bad. Mm -hmm. This is all fine. This is the story. And I don't think it's fine. And I think it's bullshit that an Oscar contender is continuing at this late date. Cause this movie's not that old to normalize all that shit. of like 20, only 22 years, 21 years old came out like almost at the turn of 2000 because it came out, it released in December of 1999. Mm -hmm. So it is basically coming out in 2000. Um, I'll tell you another thing, a bit of trivia though. Tom Hanks stayed in character on set there. That's light. That's fun. (laughs) It's light. That's fun. Hey, uh, (laughs) look, I think what you're saying has ton, ton of validity and there's no, but to the end of this sentence, I think that it's even more, 
revealing that when you kind of set up this system where we did this kind of propagating white stories and stuff that we still, uh, you know, aren't, you know, it's, we're not done yet. <laughs> like that's still happening. Uh, it's even more damning when you look at, this was like a mega success. Like it promised, Hey, look at all these white people. Look at all this Stephen King, Frank Darabont, Everyone's going to be, you know, we knew what the story was going to kind of be like. The trailer reveals that John Coffey is this archetypal character, you know, and it's a it's a it's a period piece. And it's not like a great period uh, for that kind of interaction to happen. They spent 60 million dollars on it. That's one statement. That means they in a there's no reason to spend 60 million dollars on this movie. It basically happens in one location, but they did. Mm -hmm. Uh that's because they knew they wanted, they knew it would win an Oscar. It would get close, at least. They were hoping. And it must have, right? The even it? more damning statement is the box office. Look, it came, it walked away with like an insane amount of money off That's, the first weekend. This is exactly. That propelled it to like almost $300 million. Uh, That's what gross. I'm saying like, is people probably think, I don't know how people, what people think, but this is exactly in the liminal space where I think some people will hear this and be like, why are you dragging this into this? It's just a story. Um, but I think if you really look hard at it, watch it, you'll yeah. understand what I'm saying, that the film itself is an artifact to the fetishization of the idea that black people exist to be in jail, exude mm. magic because black culture is dope and, and we take it and it benefits us. And then they mm. get tired and they die and go away. But we're, we're, we keep living forever like white supremacy lives on, but we feel bad about it. So that's enough. We feel bad about it. Um, I just think it's uh, like one of those movies like Dr. Strange that subconsciously lays out all of all of this shit. Mm. And, and is and uh, what else? Um, I want to do two more facts to get yeah, us out of yeah. Skeleton Crew <laughs> yeah. because I find what you're saying a lot more interesting in a conversation. But I do think that if people are going to be rewatching this, there's two little like directorial or like things that I want people to look there at. There we go. That's real. One of them That's is what the we DP do here. David Tattersall. So if when you watch this movie, watch this movie and ask yourself, do you think this movie is well shot? And why do you think it is well shot? What, what do you like about it? Do you like how it's lit? Do you like how it's set up and like where people are in frame? These questions. Uh, David Tattersall, who's the DP of this film, also did episode two and three of Star Wars. He did Die Another Day, which an, a Bond film at this point, like almost, I think, two years before this. Triple X, the second one, I think. <laughs> The second triple X <laughs> speed racer and the 2017 version of death note. Most recently, uh, I want people just to focus as like the experiment as a, he's really good at like close, what I would call close encounters of characters when people are very close, when I think it's all in episode two and three, episode two, three of star Wars. If you look at episode two and three of star Wars and this movie, you're going to see that photographically, uh, maybe not the color palette, maybe the fact one is uh, like a sci-fi fantasy, uh, but they look very similar in terms of isolating singles and their space. The, this is a guy who has a lot of control. He does a lot of that kind of control, but it also makes the photographic medium, like the actual like frame, I would say, look very ordered. 
and kind of otherworldly. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I just think it's something unique about this one guy. The other person is that I love the music in this movie, despite what we're going to talk about uh, about the movie in general. Thomas Newman is the guy who did the music for this movie. He uh, always he's he, so Thomas Newman. Jen was uh, as I said. It. Jen was in the kitchen doing something completely different, and she just yelled, Thomas Newman. And I'm like, yep. Yep. Oh, yep, you can tell. Yep. Uh, you recognize, I mean, if you listen to this podcast, I'm a big stan for just because of Wally. But I mean, he's done so many things. His name is worth a look Six at. feet under. What's Notable. amazing is that he does this just musically because I, I like music. <laughs> you know this, Michael. Uh, and I've studied music. Uh, he does this some really amazing thing that I have I have not recognized, which he takes two notes. He does this like ding da, like he ding da, and he does that. And that's how it is his like triumphant. <laughs> and signal. I'm like, go, man. That's rad. So, so, so that's, that's in like what we call that, I guess, a coda. Um, he's, he's a statue. Establishing essentially, this is the sound of like the Green Mile. When I do this, mm. you're gonna, it's gonna feel triumphant. He does this amazing thing where he plays the same two notes on a, a minor sequence that is, like plays it, and it kind of does both things. It's like, oh, this is triumphant and it's still it, but there's something dark now. There's something horrifying, and oh no, this shit is about to get really fucked. He's the king of that. And this is the simplest version of him doing that, where he takes the same notes and makes them based off what's underneath, makes them feel happy or sad or, you know, conf someone who's like scrambled and like uh, he does like tension really well with it. Mm -hmm. It's just something I think that here's a guy who, uh, you know, as we before we talk about the movie really knows his craft. He knocked it out of the park in this one. I'm not going to throw any shade at Thomas Newman for this one. Uh, but yeah, I think that's it. All I wanted to say about skeleton crew. That's um, like the team. I'll say a couple things about it from King's vantage, which, cause I usually bring like the, the yep. book background. Uh, it was famously released as a serial, uh, in little booklets, or I mean, it was released in several forms, I think magazines as well, but, we had it in little booklets that were released a chapter at a time. And I remember the phase in my life when that was our bedtime stories as the new ones would come Ooh. in and dad would read those to us. Uh, and he said he did it to keep people from flipping. He was sick of people flipping to the end of his books. Uh, and he just thought it would be fun. Dickens famously did that with most of his novels and much like Dickens, Stephen King has said he wrote this story, not knowing what would happen. That's what he thought was funny is, People want to flip to the end, but he wrote this one not even knowing. From chapter to chapter, he didn't know what was going to happen. He was kind of on the fly about it. And he said the film's the most faithful adaptation of any of his adaptations, although I think he said <laughs> that right. multiple times about various adaptations. But, but mainly about Darabont. Yeah, I'm pretty sure my he loves Darabont. point being that I think you... I think there's a thread of the people involved in creating this are creating it very freely and it is very reflective of their subconscious and unconscious and by which i mean that's why i that's my little conspiracy theory as to why all the shit i highlights slips through is there there are things that white americans take for granted um 
like, oh, I'm sure on death row, most of the cops are good. And there's one bad cop that brutalizes people. That'll work for the story. That's probably what it's like. Um, I think those come from places of not overt racism, but the very like white mediocrity. I, and I think, uh, I think we should move on because I'm one, I'm, I'm already doing it. No, no. I think that's, I mean, it sounds like that's what we're going to talk about because we're about to stumble into it. Bill, if you'll come with me, you'll float too. You'll float too. You'll float too. The scene work themes and symbolism of the movie or whatever the hell we want to talk about. And what I want to talk about first is Thomas Newman kind of aside, because I did agree that the score was provocative. I felt that it's, this is like transparent, safe bet filmmaking mediocrity at its most emphatic mm-hmm. because every Man, I've really infected you with my you, you're you now hate Oscars as much as I do. <laughs> I do. I hate how hard this is licking the boot of please give us Oscars. We are shot the right way. The rim light is exactly a quarter inch thick on everyone. Always. Everyone has eye light. Yeah, the music is Oscar-ish. Um, yeah. And I I just thought, like, everyone in the cast comes in and does their work and does a great job, but there's no scene. It's like, it's not Reservoir Dogs with Mr. Orange bleeding out in the back of the car. There was nothing that demanded anything really other than your standard, like, I'm going to cry a bit now because it's Oscars time. Okay, so you're um, saying that you think it's a vanilla tale as well. From beginning to end, back to back, it felt like a procedural vanilla tale that takes place in this fake wonderland of nice cops who work at death row mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. where magic black Jesus saves everyone and then of his own volition, it wasn't our fault, gets out of the way. You, so it's not a moral problem. <laughs> give me examples of uh, movies or literature that you like where uh, the um, it's highly allegorical, like, you know, like a Sartre play or something like that, like this, that mm-hmm. you actually liked. Maybe you don't like allegory. Do you not like it when the symbols are very presentational in this fashion? I like kind of like removing yourself from having to find them saying like, no, that it's obvious what Mr. Jingles is. Mr. Jingles is humanity, you know, waiting for uh, in its own powerlessness, waiting for judgment from God. This whole thing is about the devil and hell and heaven, right? That's what my argument is. I don't think. I don't think it has that honed of a point. I think King was just riffing a lot of the time. Like, dude, in the scene where (laughs) here are my notes and I think they're on point. Uh, So he's home drinking a bottle of milk. We meet his nice wife. There's no stakes or drama. Nothing at the beginning or end of the scene is the same other than he promised he'd go to the doctor. It's the lowest stakes possible thing you could talk about. This movie's three hours. I don't understand why. We cut to the plot development of there is a mouse in the green mile. They deal with the mouse for like a while. (laughs) Then we cut to one guard telling the other guard, Hey, Harry, did you know there's a mouse? And Harry says, really, there is a mouse. I thought Percy was pulling my leg. Motherfucker who would lie about that. There is a mouse there when there is not what, how boring are your lives that that's a joke you would pull is say that there's a mouse. The point. 
How f- That's the point, though. But the point is, this movie is wasting my time. No, 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 no. no. I'm not going to let you. It's off three full hour. hours. No, that's the point. And it's You're not structurally sound. It's three full hours, it's, and it's not structurally tight. I'm not disagreeing with that. I'm it just feels saying episodic that, in a way that it doesn't earn. That's true. It does feel very episodic because it do, it does just like a three act play. Um, Here's the shit we're and, dealing with, and maybe I don't like allegory. That's too on the nose. There's a spy, there's a shot down a spiral staircase. First of all, mm-hmm. if you shoot straight down a spiral staircase, you are screaming, look at this shot. It's a symbol. Um, mm-hmm. We look down on Percy, the bad one in shadow as Tom mm-hmm. Hanks takes both the light and the high ground by walking up the staircase. It's, so you, okay. it's yeah. mediocrity on display. It's just so easy and safe. I, you are right about the obviousness of all this. The only thing that I want to point right back at you is that like sometimes this shit works on you. Sometimes you're like, hell yeah. Uh, because it it's does, done right. in a way. This is set up. I think it's maybe too much. I think... I don't think this is your like to blame for this or anything. I think you're actually pronouncing a very important thing for how people watch and determine what is like art versus like what's just like a movie, right? Um, and that's what an Oscar type movie is. Is it's going? Yes, let's all celebrate movies, but there are movies that are but this the is best cinema. of the movies, and this is one. Martin this, Scorsese yeah. says this is a real yes. film. Right. And stuff like that with, ooh, I don't get me started on Martin Scorsese. I love that guy. <laughs> uh, but but like, uh, sure. <laughs> the, the, the thing, the thing with it though, is that when it's presented in such a way that it's like, it does start to feel vanilla in this way that you're pointing out. And you're saying it's one thing after another time and time again, you can take an image that otherwise another movie could display and be like, Oh, that's symbolic. And it's kind of obvious too, but it's awesome. It's perfect. But in this system, you're like, fuck it all. Let's well, the content, the point of storytelling is to impart content. So like, I believe the content at the end of the day has to be brought to task for like what it is. I think that's so like if Nazi propaganda, which I'm not saying this is, but if Nazi propaganda is shot really well, like you can say, or Lenny Riefenstahl is skilled in the following ways, but you still have to be like, but it's garbage. What's the point of the propaganda? Right. Um, And I, so like, for example, even on the structural DNA level, of this uh percy's bad right and tom hanks is good and you're supposed to be rooting for him and what's good about him is that he's gonna make him transfer to be a guard at a different facility motherfucker that's the problem that's literally what happens in real life and that's not good yeah. that's not a good happy outcome that's the basis is, for a that's the basis you know? for a that's why Cops, yeah, is you just, oh, this guy abuses the prisoners. Transfer him to Mm -hmm. a different place. Oh, problem solved. No, motherfucker, problem not solved. You have no conception of intersectional problems. And therefore you are abdicating all like statement on that. And you can't because your movie is about prison guards who work on death row. I think it's an interesting, this is an interesting one to talk about this, which is talking about for just a split second, Stephen King's faith, that if you actually look into it, if you guys don't know, he was raised a Methodist, but he fell out of organized religion, as you can kind of see representative based off of his, you know, entire 
lit all of his literature. He's not a big fan of organized religion. He often remarks and points at, as some of the points of his stories, that they have skeletons in their closet. Uh, but he believes in God and he believes in hell. In fact, one of the biggest disagreements he had with Kubrick mm-hmm. was that Kubrick didn't believe in heaven or Afterlife, hell. Yeah. And he's like, and he was thought ghosts were kind of silly. And, uh, and that's, that's why he felt that his work was like, kind of like pulp King believed in ghosts. Um, and King is like, yeah, and hell is terrifying. And so if you're, even though he's not like your run of the mill, like here we go, there's heaven, there's hell, and this is how it all works. And I'm basically making not necessarily propaganda for some Christian faith, but rather that I'm trying to make the case study for the traditionalism of how we how we kind of investigate morality as a community. That's what an allegory is for, right? So when I do all this stuff where we talk about like Percy's corruption and weakness, the uh, the disease he spits out is sin. JC, John Coffey is uh, obviously Jesus Christ, an innocent man sent to death for the sins of mankind. The reason that these things become more interesting is because what King's trying to do is trying to devise this parable to be like, all right, if you take it outside of society and just look at this small little story, uh, that is how things operate. And then you're coming in and saying, well, that you're trying to, it's connected to all this other shit. To reality. I just, too, yeah. Yeah. Stephen King it. is like, this was not a, the story for you to tell, nor was it. Mm-hmm. I just don't, I just don't buy the bill of goods, man. I don't know. It just really didn't work yeah. on me. Um, yeah. we can switch gears and I can talk about stuff that was technically impactful or good or whatever. Uh, yeah. You want to do that? Want. I actually think this this is a fascinating discussion because we rarely do this with this type of stuff. And I think that this one more than, I don't know, like thinner deserves it, you know? Well, but, I also uh, think it's uh, like I'm not blind to the fact that, and that's what I think makes it insidious. Some lip service is done to... Mm-hmm. Like Stephen King's a good guy. That's, I'm literally not trying to detract from that. I'm sure he is. Mm-hmm. Or I feel confident he is from what I know. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's probably like, I think he's trying to say, yeah, yeah, r- right. He's black and in on death row unjustly. That's I'm trying to say that kind of shit happens. I wrote Gary Sinise racist to say that's bad. And mm-hmm. I just think, yes, that's true. It's just, and maybe I'm unfairly looking at it with 2021 eyes and I have the privilege of being more educated on these topics because of, by virtue of like my blessed ability to live in this year, but it's crazy, (laughs) it's crazy clumsy to me to navigate it in that way and not notice things like you treated transferring the cop as if problem solved when that's not problem solved at all. You know, the things I'm pointing out that just seem like. Uh, negligence. That's what I mean. It's racism by negligence, not racism by trying to be racist. It's also, in fact, a little bit straw man. He, it's a in fact, bit straw man. part of the allegory is racism's bad. Like, I mean, that's where it lands. You know, it's lightly in there. Let's. I want to point out a different example because I think that there's a big loaded one. Uh, you know that the whole movie's about. That I think my cheese about. slid off my cracker. I did like that. Well, line. <laughs> uh, Graham Cracker. I want to talk about Graham Green. Well-known actor. He's you know, Native American actor. He plays Arlen Bitterbuck in this movie. 
And there's a sequence where they kind of, it's the first time that they really show the guards, the thing you were talking about earlier, where the guards have this kind of good streak, or there's this feeling of bittersweet justice when someone has been taken to the chair. We never see Graham Greene's crimes, but we know that the man, as displayed for with the few scenes that we have at the beginning of the film, is kind of played in this kind of indifferent, comfortable with his death kind of matter. Doesn't seem like he could hurt anybody. Um, so we kind of like, well, that's kind of a shame. Why should we send that guy to death? Then they have the scene where they're walking through all of the, um, you know, they're doing the rehearsal for the actual, uh, you know, execution. And, uh, one of them asks the question is like, are we going to have like a medicine man to like come in here and like grab his dick and, you know, say whatnot. Uh, and this is like a non-passive racism that's being thrown at, uh, Graham Greene. And of course, our main character, Paul Edgecombe, goes, I don't even think he, like, I think he's actually a Christian. Mm -hmm. So it's like, it's that kind of stuff I think we're talking about. It's not, it's not even the stuff that's like illicitly racist, which there's fewer examples of. It's not that it's not that just, it's not negligent, which you brought up. It is negligent sometimes. This is like a type of third tier kind of racism where it's, it's more about, Oh, you see this as a scene where it's building up the character. This person is good because they did that. It's the kind of it's funny to me because they we typically call that type of thought process as like a Sunday Catholic. Right. And King, of all people, has been well known for saying that he's against that type of Christianity. So it's kind of like, ooh. You're kind of telling on yourself with this stuff is, I guess, what I meant to uh, point out that I think King is doing that. I think he's trying to say this is a good thing that I'm doing here. This is that's a what good I mean. Re- I realization. And it's the kind of stuff that it's all taken for granted stuff like the idea that they say what happens on the mile stays on the mile. And in the structure of the film, you see that as a virtuous act. It's like not mm-hmm. snitching. But if you think about it in real life, you're like. No, a cop should snitch on another cop who abuses the prisoners routinely and let a guy burn alive. You should snitch on that. That's it's it's not valorous to have said what happens on the mile stays on the mile. You just made it seem that way with the camera angle and the plot elements and such. Mm-hmm. Like to me, there's no greater symbol than the fact that the climb emotional climax of this movie is a white cop shaking a black man's hand as the black man comforts the white cop and is wrongfully executed (laughs) for a crime he didn't commit. That's just like, that's a rough deal if it's an allegory about race relations in any way. And I think King would say, oh, it's not, it's not. I didn't mean to do, or, you know, I'm not, it's, it's more an allegory just about sin and whatnot. But I'm just saying you can't start the movie. You can't have... Michael Clark Duncan's main monologue be, I have a dream. I had a dream and have it start with an image through the cotton fields and then say the allegory didn't involve race relations at all. Mm. You know, I just, the elements are suspect. (laughs) They are suspect. I do have a question. I don't think I'm not trying to, I mean, maybe I am trying to play devil's advocate, but I just want to ask one kind of, basic mm-hmm. setup. And then I have a question for you. So you. let's, let's switch um, off. I, uh, yeah. So remember we've talked about in this podcast a lot that something that I think we agree with is that Stephen King is, 
he inspects Americana. He's Americana horror writer. And yeah. he usually is just talking about the destruction of what America, America considers itself. Or so perversion. The good folk, the pe- things between people, the good old America, the destruction of that is horrifying. So it's about the horror that people who think that they're holding up tradition actually exacting pain on others. Obviously, murderous cars and clowns and aliens aren't going to give you the same horror. He does that too. But even then he'll try to find a way like he much like he did with it, where it's actually about systemic aspects, like with the sewer mm-hmm. uh, being the, you know, that symbol. Um, he wants to give you the horror of the inside, the things that assume people we assume are normal people who are doing normal things are actually have no malicious intent or they go home and molest their kid, whatever. Yeah, exactly. And so he wants to show that the assumptions of the grand American vision of hope is being tarnished by the other and from within. He's not Clancy, uh, where it's, it's the other entirely King's done those, but his best tales are about how we eat each other up. Right. Do you think that it's possible that this is also this case, that this is kind of King's intention with this morality tale and dressing it up in all of these like signals to like, you know, uh, the tradition of capital punishment being like not a really easy to justify thing exists in a society that considers itself one of the be to be one of the moral most moral societies in the world. And he's saying that this is no problem. Or is he saying this is how we eat or eat ourselves? If he was, it was so subtle. Like I, it's like sat. It's like can you give something credit for satire if it didn't work? Because everyone, I, who, I would imagine that the hundred million, you know, dollars that this made at the box office, everyone seeing it just thought it was a nice little emotional story about a guy. I don't think this was seen like the 13th where you watch that on Netflix and you're like, that was about systemic racism. I think this is green book. I think this is exactly, it's super interesting that it's the green mile and the green book. I guess that's not Mm -hmm. that interesting because that's all there is to it, but they are both like facile anti-racist things that I think are secretly are racist. (laughs) I have the same opinion of green book. I think it's it's storytellers trying to not upset the wasp culture that is still the majority yes. of the United States. You I, know? Can I ask my question for you? Yeah, hit me. In an allegory where Jesus is going to die for our sins and he gets last words because that's because that's the structure of being executed. Mm-hmm. You would think that is the moral of the story, right? That's the big line. That what he that's says. That's Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. And he says he killed them with their love. That's how it is every day all over the world Mm -hmm. to me. So my question is like, what is that? What crystallizing human epiphany is that? What does that mean as the punchline of the moral of the story that it's bad to rape little girls? I don't understand. Like, what is, this, what's the crystallizing about, that's, there's nothing to that. He like, I, it's like okay, whiffing, so I'm atheist, it's like so whiffing your main, justice. it's whiffing your main moment. What was that moment right. about? Well, I, this is me putting on the hat saying like trying to give King the benefit of the right. doubt, which is maybe at the end of the day, what this podcast is doing. 
from my point of view. And maybe I'm, a, you know, I should. I'm forcing you into that. I'm. Don't I want to make an yeah. interesting <laughs> podcast. I actually agree with almost 100 percent of what you're saying, but. I do see, I try to look at story with like, well, here are the cards in play. And this is what I saw. So he kill them with their love. That's how it is every day all over the world. All right. What does that mm-hmm. mean? To me, what I think King's doing there is he's talking about as a man of faith, and I'm not, so I may mis- mis- misrepresent this, but he's talking about God's true justice. Every day all over the world, people die. It's horrible and it's unjustifiable to us in a way. Now, it's often a reminder of how love can't do harm. But the reality is that love is at the center of all injustice, just as it's the center of all justice. Love is to be cherished. Love is the birth of all happiness we feel. But love is also how we destroy each other. So it's a noble concept. And in practice, I think it's what he's saying there is kind of true. But I think it's um, it's once again that kind of thing that he's doing to like spin the tail for the wasp uh, consumer, which is that we sum up these great sins and tragedy in life. Uh, being directed by hate. Uh, it's hate that caused all these yeah. things. In this story, he's de- he's definitely trying to make an appeal that there's no real villains, but people who are misguided and don't see how empathy is the connection between humans. Okay, so but the let's- Green Mile is something we all must walk. We, are, we each owe a death, so sometimes the Green Mile just seems long or it seems like... Um, like he, God is doing the killing here. But let's... Right, of, yeah. But let's break down... Let's break down that moment because the moment he's actually, what he's referring to is it's the same thing he said when he psychically flashed to Wild Bill's uh, rape and murder of the little girls. And it was Wild Bill saying, if you talk, I'll kill your sister. If you talk, I'll kill your sister. So the very terrestrial, you know, interpretation of what he's saying is the moral of the story is it's bad to coerce little girls into getting raped and murdered. And it's like, well, I didn't need you to a whole story to learn that. Right. Um, so there must be more to it than that. And I'm just going through every level. Cause my point is, I don't think it really works on any level. Um, the level beyond that would be, you'd have to generalize and say, no, it's just about that love. The bonds of love are what allowed that evil man to, have them cause each other harm. Okay. So the moral of the story is don't love each other because that allows evil people to exploit you against one another. It can't, the moral can't be don't love. Well, the only morals I see are don't love each other or it's bad to rape and murder. And both are stupid morals for your story. I think it's deeper than that. (laughs) Deeper than you're giving credit. Uh, For example, earlier in that scene, John Coffey is doing his final meal and rights and Paul comes and asks him if he should let him go. And he's like, I don't care on my day of judgment. When he asks me why I killed his miracles, should I tell him that it was my job? So it's literally jumping to like Nazism at this point. It's literally right. asking that moral quandary that like everyone kind of has well, to answer. And it's interesting which is, that well, you do nothing when he shares the news with his wife that he's magic. Their immediate yeah. instinct is to have a conversation justifying why they're not. I'm sorry that he's innocent. Right. Their immediate instinct right. is to have a conversation to justify why it's morally correct for them not to tell the warden that he's innocent. Like it would be so hard on him. He's mm-hmm. already got a wife with a brain tumor. And his wife literally says to him, there's just no way out for you, is there? 
for you. Yeah, what yeah. about the guy sitting yeah. on death row who didn't do it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're sympathetic to a struggle. You're never a part of that struggle. Um, the movie should be from his point of view, not yeah, Tom yeah, Hanks' yes, point of view. It's more so interesting. That's, that's why I think it's it's fascinating to me somewhat that Stephen King, by asking that question of like, I didn't do enough. Also, please forgive me. That is the basis of the Christian faith. And what he's he's doing there is he's doing a very Christian thing, which is what a lot of white people do, which is I am not as good as I want. Please give me forgiveness anyway. This is the maneuver that softened my heart a bit. Like this is what made me think, okay, this is all subconscious. Like King is trying to say the right message in his own clumsy way. What you're saying now, I agree with you. And this is where I'll like step off my soapbox to some degree as I'm like, by the end, he tries to wrap it up with good messages. I just think he was irresponsible all along the way. Yeah. I get what he's going for and I don't think he hit it. And I don't think Darabont did anything mm -hmm. wrong. I think Darabont just translated it very transparently. And that's Mm -hmm. the problem. I mean, that's, that's storytelling. Um, right. But if your story is, yeah, no, you're right. <laughs> I know what you're going to say. Right. Uh, you're, I'm going to, you know what I'm going to say, which is that black people are so tired and it's their story to tell. And we don't need a white guy telling the story of a magic black person who we sucked all their magic out till they were so mm-hmm. tired. They mm-hmm. had to die. It's just mm-hmm. a weird mm-hmm. thing for mm-hmm. King to be writing about in my opinion. Yeah. Um, but I do love, I love the idea, the conspiracy theory that, and I understand it's an allegory, but I'm saying I like the interpretation that it's not an allegory. It's literal that he is Jesus Christ. And we failed the second coming by executing him. And now we are doomed. Like the movie ends with. That's that. We are unforgiven forever. You were supposed to not execute him. (laughs) Roll on too, motherfucker. Yeah. yeah, It's like, uh, yeah, that would, uh, cause we're all too, it wasn't even Hickok's. I mean, it was Hickok's fault. He did the crime actually. When it would speak to the, it would speak to the American to save him. No, we didn't. American original think, sin being slavery. It would be, that would be I an interesting message. I think a little message. bit is still there. I think you're right to not treat it because I think it would be like not seeing both sides would be a very like selective reasoning thing. Kind of something that is done a lot by like pundits who are arguing like, but did you think about it in this way? And it's like, no, motherfucker, you're just like throwing straw man arguments just so that we can argue about that co- aspect of conversation. I think King is doing what you're doing, but also it's more importantly to hold him, you know, uh, hold him to the fact that he's also setting up this, you know, morality play in such an obvious, uh, like traditional way that, and he's not updating it or saying that, uh, he's not trying to say that we shouldn't be this way. He's just saying that like, uh, it's, it's a shame that it is this way. It's like, Oh my God, no, man, say something a little bit stronger, a little bit more true, a little bolder and braver. Or with more gray area in it, because it's interesting that he presents gray area. So the way he presents moral gray area is to be like, there's three prisoners, two of them are good and one is bad. So there's moral gray area if you take them on average. And it's like, no, why didn't you feel like, why is Wild Bill all bad? Why couldn't he be morally complex? That would have made this much more interesting. That would have made 
completely different tale. Like, here's the thing is it's such a classic tale of like obvious goodness and obvious badness. And like, there's this, there's this quote that when I was watching it, that I like wrote it down. Cause I was like, you know what? This is like the movie on the level that we're talking about right now. At one point there, once again, the rehearsal scene, he says, you got all the words, right? And I think that that's kind of what this movie is. That's great. It's like you yeah. presented, you presented all of the details correct. You missed the fucking point, though. You or that, it. or I mean, uh, yeah. And the only defense, which is, I think, what is the truth, is all of white America was not aware of those points at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of us are now, and it's a bad look in retrospect. <laughs> Yeah, I think that there's still one thing that I still think is true, which is that when we're talking about this meta conversation, Stephen King kind of feels just like uh, Hollywood, Hollywood, the machine feels that it needs to placate itself to this Christian, you know, like uh, version of faith and this forgiveness aspects and all these culturally like where we came from as a society uh, and that's not just limited to the white people, but it was dictated by the white people. Um, through history, we said this is the morality that we chose. This is our flavor of beliefs. And the the he is pointing out something interesting here by saying that sometimes our virtues and our values force us to do something that is bad, like do our job, so to speak. And I think that there's something like a meta conversation about like Stephen King maybe wants to say something more, but feels like he can't because it would not be as like he's he's Stephen King. He has to put out like something that a lot of people are going to read. And that's like that shows a little bit of cowardice. Right. That's what he's asking forgiveness for. Is that cowardice? That's what I mean. Is the thing, the thing the thing that's soft. And we all have to do that. Am I going to do the best thing all the time? I don't think so. Like if we want to get real about it, like I, there's times in which I could have probably stood up and said something more about. That's something. what I'm saying is we're supposed to forgive him because at least he feels bad, and I I see that He's just for an individual person. But if it's an allegory for society, and he represents white society that has its heart in the right place, but nevertheless lets everyone else down constantly. I don't really forgive society. I do forgive an individual mm-hmm. human, but I think an That's allegory right. invites that That's a better discussion. Yeah, absolutely. I just think that there's, there's too many combinations like, of lines that say that kind of stuff, like the kill them with oh, the love. Oh, it's intentional. Yeah. Yeah. He it's, knows what there's he's doing. Something he there. knows where he's at fault. Especially it all comes together in the end when he's like, and I'm haunted and that's my penance is to live right. or whatever. But I would yeah, exactly. still argue that getting off. Surface value, man. Yeah. If your punishment for your great sin of killing Christ is that you live an extra hundred years, that sounds like one of the better possible punishments you could get it's like your punishment is laser eyes uh okay great sorry i'll get out of your hair now Um, i understand it would be sad to watch your children die but it's better than being fucking tortured in hell or whatever Um, that's right that's right uh And I just to forever not be able to pee would be probably pretty apt. To, it's the simple oversight. It's like, it's crazy. Even from wild Bill's mm-hmm. point of view, I think most people are aware nowadays that like the movie treats it as good and almost like a wacky hijinks and like, Hey, he finally got his. 
they exaggerate how like he is a shrieking monster so that you can feel mm-hmm. good when Tom Hanks hoses him down with her, or Harry hoses him down with a fire hose or Tom Hanks puts him in ISO. But in real life, putting deeply traumatized, violent offenders in ISO just makes them much worse. Like that's not the right thing that's to the do. Other thing about it's not a cute hijink that Tom Hanks put the crazy guy in ISO and drugged him. It's right. gross misconduct on the part of a guard. <laughs> right. And let's remember to separate uh, God's justice or what I think he's saying to human to human justice, which is kind of like if we're going to see coffee as an extension of God uh, in his parable here, there's an interesting interaction that like interferes with all of this stuff that we're like giving it uh, the green mile, the benefit of doubt. And that is that like we're wouldn't the truly, you know, true thing be to for coffee to cure Percy of his like impurity, his corruption. Instead, he fills him with more vile because this idea is that the choice is what makes the sin. So like he's Judas in a way, right? Like he's mm-hmm. he is uh, obviously Judas believed in Jesus initially, but there's an appeal to something even like more that real to life that evil people are moved to kill evil. I, he, he kills William the wild bill. That isn't necessarily true. Evil doesn't kill evil. Evil just will kill. All right. It's the only clear indication of King saying that hope triumphs over evil because God ordains it. And I don't know if I even believe that he believes that. Like I don't because I'm apparently a broken atheist, but I think it's when we're talking about what's the good thing to do and what's godliness coffee who has the power to essentially cure sin, it seems and heal people chooses to allow people to act uh, apropos of him and then let his judgment reign up from high. Like I'm going to fill you with more bile bile and all that stuff Mm -hmm. because I'm going to make you be even like you. I've decided are not savable. That's like a, that's yeah. He judged Percy. Jesus wouldn't even say that. Right. Jesus wouldn't be, I curse you to shoot this guy and go insane. That's pretty extreme for Jesus. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, he, and like uh, coffee knows what he's doing. So that there's a lot to unpack there. And I think you gotta, you kind of just got to watch the movie again, people who m- maybe haven't at this point. Watch the movie and tell, determine for yourself if you think that that's a – is King appealing to something there? If you haven't watched it in a while, you'll probably think I'm coming out of nowhere. But I think if you watch it with this in mind, you'll be like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Michael was a little more upset than he should have been. But this argument stands. No. It's there. <laughs> I think you're appropriately upset. I, I was upset by it. I remember really liking this movie. Um, yeah, and that, that makes sense. Uh, yeah. Like uh, for most of my life, I've been like a vanilla, like just go with whatever people that's what I I would totally that's it's the difference and I know the words become hackneyed at this point but it's like the difference between woke and not if I I've definitely seen this movie before and none of these issues would occurred to me at all and now they seem so apparent it's interesting that we change (laughs) over time now now you're so woke you ain't never going to sleep exactly as they say (laughs) doctor sleep good movie doctor sleep better movie i guess well speaking Doesn't of ranking the movies are we ready to or do you got I think more? so so this is a part of the story where we make to quote mother abigail the stand it's time to make your stand 
This Stand. is a review. Stand. Stand. Stand, Stand. in the place where you king now Stand rate king. films. Yeah. Yeah, I have a question. Is the mm-hmm. termination, we've talked about this. We talked about it, I think, on Dr. Sleep. But I just want to make it clear because it's now we kind of have it in our head and we can make it clear pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Is the determination of this list, Michael Swaim, the best movie or is it the best version of the story as an, as an adaptation? Do we have an answer to that? Are, is our list format one or the other? Does it represent I, movies that resonate with you or right. movies that are the best possible outcomes of the movie version of I the think King Tale? I think it's got to be the movie as it stands on its own, because if it was the fidelity of the adaptation, we would be mm-hmm. reading the books and we are not. And we are not. There you go. I, That's the answer. Everyone. And you know, so everyone- Coen Brothers Brothers was about movies, frame rates about movies. We love books. Books are great. But this mm-hmm. network is largely a movie podcasting network. Mm-hmm. I think it's about mm-hmm. the movies. Well, where, where, where should we start? Top, bottom? I think we should start at the top because it will add more tension that way. Ooh. Okay. And so this will, we've, so, well, let's just count. We'll find out together as we go. So number one. So my number one is still The Shining. The Shining. So far of everything we've covered, The Shining shines as the greatest flick out there. The Shining. Number two. For me, stand by me. For me, it's Doctor Sleep. I know. Little, uh, a little Stephen King superhero movie in disguise that I love very much. As we found, you liked Doctor Sleep slightly more than I did. Yep. Although Stand by Me wasn't far off because that's my number three. What was your number three? But hey, you know what? My number three is Misery. So now, solid number three. Yeah, Misery loves company. Because my number four is also misery. So double your misery, double your fun. How about you? Number four. But don't have too much fun because then you'll get tired and have to doctor sleep. Which is All right. And that closes our top four universe. That's, that's an yeah, enclosed yeah. loop now. Oh, yeah, but moving right. on. Yeah. Number five, I push through the veil of the mist. The mist. All right. We've joined peens again. We've joined. So at <laughs> five, we, at five, we're like, yeah, the mist is thoroughly mm-hmm. like in the middle there. <laughs> where I want to ask you where you think my green mile is going to land, but let's just go on. <laughs> Number six. Well, if you think like I think, mm-hmm. uh, that is now I put green mile under the mist. Christine. Christine, the first of two killer car movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and that this was a tough one because you know you know I love me some Carpenter. I just mm-hmm. think that uh, the story of Christine is a lot more trite and useless. <laughs> as a I tale. just had fun with it. I thought it was it better was than fun. it had any right to be. So it got Once bumped again, up a couple it's like Carpenter does this thing where he's like, "I'm yeah. going to take like kind of." stupid concept with the exception of the thing, mm-hmm. uh, stupid concept and make it way better than the, uh, frankly should be. Um, yeah. and that's what we saw in Christine, but so what was your me, six? The green mile still beats Christine green mile. Me. Okay. Number yeah. seven, thinner. Christine. Ooh, okay. you really putting the mile down there. It's a long green mile. Cause thinner sucks. Number, <laughs> number thinner eight does suck. dead zone. I'm going it 1990s it which you also hated. I loved the discussion so much. Not a fan of the project itself. Number nine for me is it. 
that that's uh, dead zone for me, baby. <laughs> okay, so now our now our now like it's all, uh, yeah five yeah. to nine is an, is an enclosed. Here we, I'm just waiting well. to hear what you're, where you're putting the green mile. That's my big thing. Number ten, the one we thought would be on bottom forever, but it's rising like a plucky little scrapper Ooh, from the ashes. Dreamcatcher, number dream ten. Dreamcatcher, I'm putting thinner there, but um, Dreamcatcher better than. The Green Mile. This, I knew. I'm like, this episode will legitimately upset people. We will get comments saying, Mike, I love you, but you're wrong for these reasons. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. Time will tell. So now what are we on? 11? Question. Number 11? I believe so, because we've done 12 of these, right? <laughs> okay. I have to let people know. I'm not trying to say, hmm, maybe I'm as bad as King, because this is not meant to be a referendum on how important or unimportant missing or not missing the point of intersectional race relations is. Like, I'm not saying that's a bigger crime than making a bad film, but my number 11 is Green Mile. My number 12 is still <laughs> maximum, maximum overdrive. That is the line you will draw. You draw the, line the line I drew at... is, I'm like, racism's you bad. so shitty. Racism's very bad and upholding white supremacy without even consciously doing it, normalizing that mm. shit, very bad to do. Maximum Overdrive, though, have you seen it? It's quite bad. It's quite bad. <laughs> and that's also my last one. Uh, yeah, so we all agree about that. But yeah, you put it lower. I put a lot higher. I don't know if that uh, in the same way that is revealing about what you're saying. Does that mean that I'm racist? Time will tell. Time. No, Hotel. I don't think it does, dude. I just think it means you're playing the game as intended, where it's like, how is the quality of this fabric? Yeah, yeah, how is the quality of this shot to shot? Which, and I'm yeah. doing a weird wild card thing, which is if it's telling a racist allegory, though, I'm going to drop it like 10 slots, <laughs> you right. know? So, like, uh, throughout most of this podcast, I've been saying things like, well, when we look at things like God's justice and stuff like that, uh, if you're like me and like an atheist, uh, you don't really care about that. <laughs> so <laughs> also everything I said can go away because if it doesn't matter to you, it doesn't matter to you. You know, um, you know what I would like to do though? Yeah. Would you do this with me? We should do a podcast where Adam convinces us both to believe in God really devoutly over I the course of like <laughs> 10 episodes. That would be amazing if he could do that. I, don't, I mean, I don't think... He can. And the intro theme would be that Dave Matthews song, Save Me. Oh. About the atheist who wants to get converted. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 See, I I don't want to put that kind of evil on him. That task? Well, because no shit, man. Like, I would love to believe in life after death, and I've just never been able to. It just doesn't seem... I just can't believe it. It doesn't seem true. And I never, ever have. And I wish I did. Mm -hmm. I would like someone to do whatever, teach my brain how to do that trick. Teach me to believe that there's an afterlife. That would be dope. Mm -hmm. I would take it, even if it's a delusion, but somehow I'm immune to it. I'm excited about being convinced by things or seeing, you know, truth and stuff. Uh, but you get, you know, you need to do a lot of work in order for me to see the truth. Uh, the Green Mile did a lot of work. I don't know if I still see the truth for all the reasons that uh, Michael has said today. But at the same time, it, it's it's dressed up in very nice clothes. It said all the words right. 
It did. And those words were Oscar, please. Please give me, 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 me. <laughs> so yeah, there's that. Man, we're never going to work in this town, are we? Because like, Speaking of give me Matt, money, Frank, <laughs> head to Patreon.com. to find this and he's going to be like, right. fuck these two guys in particular. You're never working in Hollywood. No, no. How sad to end with a house ad. Let's get the fuck out of here. Michael's making puns. I love it. I love it so much, my man. Hey, good conversation. Yeah. This has been a Small Beans Endeavor. We're a bunch of pals who make podcasts, sketches, music, web series, and movies. The Beans always have new ideas percolating, so make sure to check us out at patreon.com slash smallbeans. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash smallbeans, where you can browse all of our current and past content, see what we've got planned in the future, and learn how your support can help the Small Beans grow into huge, giant monster beans. If you enjoyed this content module, please like, rate, subscribe, or tell a friend about us. We love you.